that's the role of the developer and the designer to say, yes, we know, but here's what's also good for you. And even though you don't know it yet, and it's turned out to be true. And that's why we opened at 94% leased. Our apartments have been 99% leased since we opened five years ago, because people want to be a part of that. And it's really fascinating to watch. You're listening to the Hospitality Leaders. Each week on the show, we bring you conversations with leaders in the hospitality, event, and food service industries. Our conversations help you understand the state of the industry, the challenges we all face today, and what the future holds. Subscribe and be sure to check out our website for more resources at hospitalityleaderspodcast.com. This episode is brought to you by Upshift. Our on-demand staffing platform allows businesses to hire high-quality hourly workers with peace of mind. Find out more at upshift.work. All right, I'm here today with Todd Richardson. He is the president of the Crosstown Concourse in Memphis. How are you doing today, Todd? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm doing great. I am really excited to uh, have this conversation today. Uh, I think people are going to be really interested to hear what you have going on down there in Memphis and uh, really excited to kind of hear how you've built it and then extrapolate it towards what they do. So I think before we get started today, Todd, I'd love to hear a little bit more about you. So if you wouldn't mind kind of starting this off with you, your background and, and how you got there. Sure. Happy to. It's definitely been a meandering journey for sure. So I started out in the University of Memphis in 2008. I was an art history professor there. I had gone to grad school in Berkeley, California for a few years and then Amsterdam and the Netherlands for five years and then went on the job market in 2007. And there were 12 jobs in the entire country and what I do or did at the time, which is Renaissance art history. And one of them just happened to be at the University of Memphis. So my wife and I and our four-year-old daughter Moved here in 2008, which was great. I'm from North Mississippi and she's from Birmingham, Alabama. So it was a little bit like coming home. And I thought I'd won the lottery. I had a tenure track job in 2008 when the recession hit. And a lot of my buddies were postdocs or one-year appointments or having their job searches frozen. And so we were elated to be here. Then about a year later, I started having a conversation with a gentleman in Memphis who had bought in 2007 a Sears distribution center. And so that is, it's about, it's called Sears Crosstown, about a mile and a half east of downtown Memphis from the river. It was built in 1927, or at least the original building was built in 1927. This is a fun fact. The original building was 620,000 square feet in 1927, and they built it in 180 days, six months. Isn't that crazy? Oh my goodness. Yeah. Put that into perspective. In 1928, they built the Empire State Building in 14 months. So that's just how they did things back then. But it grew from 620,000 square feet. They had five different additions to 1.5 million square feet. So it was a massive building, a massive impact on Memphis. The neighborhood kind of grew up around it. There were 1,500 people that worked here. They handled 45,000 orders a day. Now, remember, that's back when you're ring, ring or mailing the order (laughs) in. For those who are watching or listening, may remember the Sears catalog. Right. If you're like me, late November, the wish book comes and, and you flip through, figure out what you want for Christmas and you circle it, dog ear the page and you just handed your parents the Sears catalog, right. right? That was your right. Christmas list. And so if you lived in Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Louisiana or Arkansas and ordered from the, cat- the catalog, it came from this building. So being from North Mississippi, this was my North Pole. And so the the first movie theater outside of downtown was is across the street. I mean, that's kind of the kind of impact that this building had on the neighborhood, which became the Crosstown neighborhood. 
And so it, let's see, just with the trajectory of Sears, right? There was there, it was Amazon before Amazon. And then in the 70s and 80s, they all of a sudden had competition in Walmart and service merchandise, Circuit City and all sorts of others. And for a lot of different reasons, things didn't go well for Sears. So this building was closed. The the retail store was closed in 1983. The the building as a whole was closed in 1993. And so it had been empty for 17 years by the time we got started on it. And and he bought it in 2007. He was going to donate it to a local college and it was going to become the urban campus. That didn't happen in 2007, then 2008, the recession hit. But he had a vision for this building to be renovated, a kind of mixed use approach, but it was really about arts and culture that would be the spark that drove the conversation about what to do with 25 football fields of space that was empty, right? It's kind of like, if you think about the Chrysler building in New York on its side, It's literally, if you take the building and turn it on its head, it would be about 200 feet taller than the Chrysler building in New York. Wow. So it's just kind of the sleeping giant right between Rhodes College and St. Jude Children's Research Hospital on North Parkway. So great location. Nobody could figure out what to do with it. It was, it was so big. And so he and I got started a conversation around the arts because that's what I, that's what I knew. And I just, I couldn't let it go. Got inspired and started doing what I knew how to do, which was research and found projects really across the globe, large industrial complex recaptures that had happened with kind of arts being the spark of what to do. And so we decided to put together a feasibility team, people who actually knew what they were doing in terms of development, architecture, engineering, marketing, communications. And that's how I got involved in the project. We started the project in 2010, opened the building in 2017. And so now five years later, I'm here overseeing the day-to-day operations. That's my trajectory. I can go into what it actually is in the next question. Yeah, I was going to say, I think that's probably the next place to go here. So you've now got 25 football fields of space (laughs) uh, that you have developed in an urban area. So kind of walk us through, what does that look like? I mean, what did you end up doing with this massive building? It's essentially a vertical village. Not essentially, it is. It's a vertical urban village anchored in arts, education, and healthcare. And so where we came out of that feasibility study was, look, you look at the space simply as space to be filled. It's like, where do you start? It's 25 football fields. And so what we did is we looked at the space as an opportunity to create a whole new neighborhood. And if you think about what makes a neighborhood great, a place where you want to pay rent and spend money in, it's not rocket science. It's There's good residential. There's access to quality healthcare. There's access to quality education, right? You want to you want to live in a place where you can send your kid to good schools. There's arts, entertainment, food, obviously, and there's green space. So normally, what would happen is you would spread all those things horizontally out in a plot of space. And so we just decided, well, what if we stack those things on top of each other in the ten floors that are the building and create this vertical village? but in an intentional community. So the phrase that we kept saying to ourselves was beyond mixed use. How do we curate a space, a built environment, as well as a collection of tenants where there is arts next to healthcare? You would think those are two disparate things, but the reality is the expression of the creative self is a big component of what it means to be well, right? 
you were mentioning earlier, this is something you do because you love it. This is an expression of your creative self. And it what it's what makes you make makes you whole and full. And that is a key component as much as a prescription, right? Of what it means to be well. And I didn't realize that until Crosstown Arts, the Contemporary Arts Center, was next to Church Health, which is our healthcare facility in the building. So how can we continue to make those kind of connections between arts, education, and healthcare? Because those are the three components that really define Memphis. Got a long history of arts and culture in Memphis, primarily in music, everybody knows. Healthcare, the medical district, we're actually in the medical district where you've got St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, Le Bonheur Children's Hospital, the University of Tennessee Medical School, the University of Tennessee Dental School and Nursing School. And there's like 30,000 jobs in the healthcare industry within less than a mile from here. And then education. We're at the epicenter of education reform in America with the charter school movement and a lot of really interesting things going on in Memphis to try to reform public education. So how do we bring all those things in into the building, interconnected in interesting ways? So Today, it's the ground floor is about 50,000 square feet of retail. And it's just think about all the things you'd love to have in an old town square. There's six restaurants. There's two music performing arts venues. There's, there's coffee, ice cream, bank branch, pharmacy, hair salon, those kinds of things. Two through six are commercial space. That's where Crosstown Arts is. They are contemporary arts center. They have gallery space, an artist residency space, performing arts space, maker space. Church Health, they provide quality health care to the working uninsured. They have, if you are contract worker, freelance, artist, musician, low income, whatever it is, if you don't have health insurance, you can get primary care, behavioral health, dental, eye care there. They serve about 65,000 patients a year. There's a high school in the building, a charter public high school, 500 kids, ninth through 12th. That is an interesting challenge, I will say, for sure. <laughs> along with a slew of other Teach for America local headquarters. And then we've got more traditional doctor's offices and for-profit businesses as well. And then I think there's a total of 53 tenants in the building. And then for seven through 10 are 265 apartments. So you have artists and residents living there. You have teachers and residents. You have doctors and residents. 20% of the apartments or 53 apartments are affordable. So we just follow the HUD guidelines for that. So it's a really interesting mix of folks living here. So for a building that was empty for 20 years, there's 3,000 people coming and going now. A little over 500 who live here, a little over 1,500 who work, a little over 500 related to the school, and then folks coming and going related to the restaurants and the YMCA and doctor's offices and all that. So it's, uh, yeah, you never know what you're going to get on any given day for sure. I've heard of several towns here in Ohio where I live that are actually seem smaller than what you've got going on there. So <laughs> it's true, actually, and Tennessee as well. Yeah, oh, absolutely. So I've got to, I've kind of got to ask here. I mean, you were, you've been at this since the outset, since the ground, working its way up. You did the research to try to put it together. How did you figure out that creating this ecosystem was going to be, that it was going to work? I mean, a high school next to a hospital, next to an art center with a bunch of residents. What did you use to kind of guide your decision-making? Oh, man. People say that Crosstown happened because Todd didn't know that it wasn't possible. (laughs) (laughs) And that's true. That's true. Naivety goes a long way when you're trying to innovate and do something new. Well, the first thing is I surrounded myself with people who really had some great experience and knew what they were doing. My co-leader in the project was a guy named McLean Wilson. And he always say, I'm the Excel spreadsheet to my Photoshop. 
Uh, we were kind of <laughs> two sides of the same coin and we had an engineer and development person, marketing communications, had a, a great team that really went through a long process of discernment for what to do. We also had models out there. I hadn't really found anything in, in the US that is similar to this in terms of the intentional community, but there certainly are great mixed use process projects out there and in Sears buildings. This is one of 10 of these Sears distribution centers that exist. Seattle is the headquarters of Starbucks, for example. Minneapolis is a Midtown Exchange, which is a great place with retail office and residential as well. Pont City Market in Atlanta is another one. And 401 Park in Boston is another one. So we really took from them aspects that we liked. There are other projects like the Distillery District in Toronto or Mass Mocha in North Adams, Massachusetts, where like Massachusetts Museum of Contemporary Art, it was a late 19th century spark plug plant, 750,000 square feet, a lot, most of which now is a contemporary art gallery, beautiful, beautiful place. And so we took all of those things and then said, okay, well, what's Memphis's version of this? And, and that's really, we drilled in on the arts, education, and healthcare that really defines this area of Memphis. And so that what we did here just seemed natural to fit in the surrounding environment. So we had lots of, lots of inspiration for other places, but then it was, the challenge was about how do we do, how do we do it our way for Memphis? And in terms of having healthcare next to for-profit businesses, next to high school, it was just like, Hey guys, it's set all about setting expectations. Here's what we're going for. There were definitely design decisions that had to be made that supported the vision. And I'll give you an example. We were told, well, first of all, we were told just demolish the building. It, this is never <laughs> going to happen. But we also were told, hey, you need to, you need to decide on one area of the building where you have residential and just do the apartments from the first floor up to the 10th floor because you need to be able to stack apartments on top of each other so that all of that infrastructure of plumbing and electrical mechanical and everything can, can stack and they can have their own entrance and all that and we were like no 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 this is a interconnect intentionally interconnected community we want residents on the same elevator as people going to office as same elevator as kids going to school etc I will say the first year, it was really awkward. About eight o'clock in the morning, you had residents taking their dog out in their pajamas. You had kids going to school. You had healthcare executives going to their office. It was funny. And we all just started saying, study hard, sleep well. And so we, we decided, hey, we're not going to do that. And our engineers said, well, it can't be done. So all of those projects that I mentioned, great projects, just different, more traditional mixed use approach. And so our question was beyond mixed use and creating intentional community and their connectivity and discovery and all of those things. And so we had to make design decisions in order to support that. And then just one specific example is related to the residential. We were told, hey, you need to pick one section of the building, you need to do apartments, floors one through 10. And that way, all of the mechanical and plumbing and electrical can stack and apartments can stack on top of each other. And we're like, well, that means they would have their own elevator and they would be segregated away from all the other things. We're not doing that. And they're like, well, you don't really have a choice. You have to do that. And we're like, well, figure it out. <laughs> and so they went away and they came back and they were like, well, we have a solution, but you're never going to do it. And we're like, okay, what's the solution? And they said, well, if you take 
floor seven through 10, the entire floor plate and have apartments up on seven through 10. And you have all those bathrooms and all those kitchens and everything coming down. And then you get down to the sixth floor and Methodist Healthcare had the entire sixth floor, 100,000 square feet. Where does all that infrastructure go? Because that office doesn't have all those kitchens and bathrooms and et cetera. And the floor to ceiling heights weren't tall enough in order to have a drop ceiling that would fit all of it. And so what you would have to do is on the seventh floor, you would have to create an 18 inch interstitial floor so that the apartments on the seventh floor, instead of having 10 and a half foot ceilings, they would have nine foot ceilings, which is still great. And it would, all of that infrastructure would go under the floor so that it could get redirected to cores that were throughout the building. So they wouldn't mess up the office space underneath, but that's going to cost this many seven figures of dollars to do it. And so we know you're not going to do it. And we're like, well, that is missional for us because we want residents on the elevator with people going to the office, with high school kids going to the school. We want all that interactivity happening in the elevators. Yes, there's social friction. Yes, it can be super awkward when somebody's <laughs> taking their dog out in their pajamas with kids going to school and with a healthcare executive going to their office, but that's the point, right? <laughs> and so we ended up having to cut a couple million dollars in another not as essential missional component in order to make that happen. But that's the that's the importance of having that mission so that it guides your design to be able to support and inspire the kind of inter interconnectivity that you want. And those are the things that make this place different. Residents actually know people who work in the office. Office people actually know kids and teachers going to school. And that's how you create community is a built environment that really helps corral because at the end of the day, we're all busy, right? And if it left our own devices, we're just going to do what's right in front of us because we're all right. passionate about the mission or the business that we're doing. That's the role of the developer and the designer to say, yes, we know, but here's what's also good for you. And even though you don't know it yet, and it's turned out to be true. And that's why we opened at 94% leased. Our apartments have been 99% leased since we opened five years ago because people want to be a part of that. And it's really fascinating to watch. When I started asking you more about this originally, and you and I started talking, you kind of described this covalent bonding of all these different areas as urban magnet theory. That's right. And, and you've kind of and you've kind of touched on some of this, right? Like having the activity mixed with the retail, mixed with the education and the programming. One of the things I think you didn't touch on but caught my attention was the piece on production, right? Not just having the end use item there, but having the actual production that goes into that. Can you talk maybe a little bit about that? Yeah, my favorite example of that. So urban magnet theory is the notion that people are attracted to people. And people are attracted to different types of people doing different types of things. And it's really the combination of all those things that make a place successful over a long period of time. So the theory actually comes from Vancouver based in a place called Granville Island. And this was a dump down on the river downtown in Vancouver in the 70s. And the city decided, hey, we need to do something with this. And they hired a design firm. And that design firm really just designed a place for the people who live there. It's got an art school. It's got live theater. It's got a year-round farmer's market. It's got shops and different kinds of things that happen there. It is now the second most visited place in Canada behind Niagara Falls. Just crazy, right? Wow. Especially when they're designing it just for the people who are there. Right. So in the early 2000s, they were like, this is crazy. Like, why is this happening? And so they, they did a study 
urban places in North America, why are some places, let's just say malls, for example, why were the malls so popular in the 80s, right? And early 90s. And then kind of all of a sudden in the early 2000s, I don't know about in, in Ohio, but in Memphis, most of our malls have demolished right. or converted into something completely different. Right. And, and so why are malls, why were they so popular? And then after 15, 20 years, just kind of went away. Whereas Granville Island started in the mid seventies and has only gotten more, more and more popular each decade. So they did a study of that. What they figured out, it's not an algebraic equation, but it, it is interesting. What they figured out is what's your thing? Like, what are you going to double down on in terms of the thing that people come there for? So Granville Island, for example, is boating. It's on the water. They've got all sorts of things related to boating. It's arts. They have an art school there and it's food. For us, it was arts, education, healthcare, and food. And so what are your magnets, right? So, so figure that out first. And then within each magnet, there are five things that, that if you deliver on those five things, it no guarantee for success, but it's going to, to improve your chances of being sustainable over a long period of time. And that number one is retail, but not just any retail, it's locally defined retail, right? That, that either locally owned, new to market, something that is there and it's not anywhere else. And it, and it's part of that vibe. The second thing is where we buy something, we also want to see something being made production. So at Granville Island, yes, you can buy a boat, but you can also see boats being worked on fixing the hull or the sails or whatever else. At Crosstown, you can buy coffee, but there's also a roastery where you see the beans being ro roasted and packaged for delivery and distribution. In healthcare, yes, you can walk in and make an appointment with a doctor and get a prescription. But right next to that is the YMCA, where you're literally looking through the glass window at people producing wellness. I remember growing up, going to Asheville, North Carolina in the summers, and you would see the glass blower and the weaver and the ceramics pottery maker. And we just, where we buy something, we also want to see something being made. And then the third component is we want to learn how to make it. Education. Right. So you go to a food spot and there's culinary classes in the same place where you're see, seeing people making chocolate or bacon bread. The fourth thing is a unique built environment. You want people to come to your place and know that they're not anywhere else in America. Nothing against suburbs and retail strip centers or whatever, but you go to a place like that and you can be anywhere in America. At Crosstown, we were really careful about retaining the historical character and making some design moves so that there's no other place in the world like this place. And then the fifth thing, it's hugely important, is ongoing events and programming. So we, we put about $200,000 a year into what we call our Better Together public events that are free and open to the public. Crafts and drafts, mid-autumn festival, splashdown, frighttober, just stuff <laughs> to bring people to the building, to the village. That they may not work here, they may not live here, go to school here, et cetera, but they know they're welcome here. And then, of course, these events, thousands of people come and they eat in the restaurants and they buy beer and they do all those things. So retail, production, education, unique built environment and ongoing events and programming are really the matrix behind what, what helped us curate not only who our tenants are, but where people are located. So that when you come into the central atrium, you look around and you see production and you see retail, and you see all of these different things happening, and it just feels whole.
And in the time in which we live, in the digital time in which we live, not criticizing the digital time, there's all sorts of great things that come about as a result of that. But the human connection and the people being attracted to people is real. Well, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And I mean, I think a lot of people listening to this are going to start thinking to themselves, well, I don't have 25 football fields of space to, to, to <laughs> you need mix. It. Uh, you don't need it, right? I mean, right. if you're dealing with any sort of a space with it, any sort of community, I mean, or, or building a community around your space, this is a, a absolutely great uh, concept. And actually, uh, you sent me an article about this. I'm actually going to include that in the show notes for anybody who's interested to, to learn a little bit more about this. I think how you design your business and how you design the interactions with the, with that business is just as a big a part as everything else we talk about on this show. And so I think putting that out there in the urban, urban magnet theory and kind of just explaining how that behemoth that you've built out there really came together is absolutely fascinating. One of the things I always find interesting is to ask, and especially in a unique area like yours, is you're bringing on leadership into your team. What kind of advice are you giving that leadership as they get started in this amazingly unique environment of yours? That's a great question. As a matter of fact, I just brought on a COO about three weeks ago. So I've been having a lot of these conversations. But the main thing, especially in a place like this, is it's just listening. And there's so much, I always say, in a time where we talk about innovation so much, really so much of innovation is renovation. It is seeing what's there and listening and understanding what's there and then tweaking it and uh, nuancing it and renovating it a bit to create something new. And so my folks here, it's all about just listening and close looking, seeing how people move, what the patterns are of the flow, and really allowing your ideas to come from what's already there as opposed to feeling like you have to create something new or impose something new, or design something new. It's actually already there. You just got to discover it and see it in a different way. That's phenomenal, Todd. And I think that's absolutely awesome advice. So Todd, if people wanted to find out more about Crosstown, where are they going to find out more about it? So crosstownconcourse.com is our website, and it's got the history and photos and videos. If you if you just Google Crosstown Documentary, there's actually an hour-long feature-length documentary on the whole project from development all the way to opening day. There's a great book you can get on Amazon. It's called Sears Crosstown from Catalogs to a Concourse, and it actually maps from the beginning of Sears all the way to opening day of Crosstown Concourse. And then there's a case study for those who are academics like me, who just love the information. If you just Google Bruner Foundation, Crosstown, B-R-U-N-E-R, Crosstown, there's a 55-page case study that will give you every detail. It is not a page turner, but it goes into the details of the team and the financing, all of the, the design, the community, everything. It's really fantastic. It's the best thing written on the project. That's and then Crosstown Art, crosstownarts.org is another way. It's the Contemporary Arts Center. Interestingly, they were actually the developer of record for the project. Love it. I am like feverishly writing down all of these resources to make sure we capture this all in the show notes so that anybody who's interested to be able to have a one-stop shop for being able to research what you have there. So Todd, thank you so much for spending time today and really giving us a look inside of what you're doing. It's been absolutely phenomenal and I sincerely appreciate it. You're welcome. Thanks for thinking of us to be on. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Talk soon. Okay. Thanks. Thank you for listening. And we hope you found this episode insightful. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a five-star review. You can find more information and links to all the resources mentioned in today's episode at hospitalityleaderspodcast.com.